I want to say thank you to the music team um, for helping us today. The elders um, spoke by phone on Friday night in the midst of trying to sort out what to do for Sunday. And uh, we decided to, to do this sort of modified online service. And so just um, thank you to all of the musicians, singers who came, AV, for just helping us to be able to bring a service to you. Thank you for watching online. Um, I think this is something, this sort of fellowship that um, our hearts are going to long for over the coming weeks, just in, in terms of being a part like this. This is difficult. We've got a skeleton group here, if you will, today, some elders and deacons and families, um, just to sort of help with the singing, just trying to figure out as we go along. And so a little different, but thank you so much for those of you who are watching. I'm not going to do a coronavirus-specific sermon this morning. There are, there are a ton of helpful biblical resources out there online, uh, other messages done specifically on this, and a lot of blog posts. I, I think by God's providence, um, we spent the beginning month of this year thinking about suffering, and, and considering what God would have us do through difficult times. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we were brought back to James chapter 4 and reminded again of God's sovereign rule and, and our abiding our will by him. And that has so quickly come to bear on our lives. And so I'm grateful for all of that. But there is, a, I think, a clear correlation between the last half of Acts chapter 1 and where we are in this quarantined, uncertain waiting to see what happens next sort of world that we're in. Because for those first disciples, life was on pause. They were waiting and wondering and had no sort of upcoming schedule of events to help them think about what was going to happen next. And we can sort of relate to that right now. We've come to, to be in this place where we're sort of thinking things Things will end here soon. We'll get back to normal soon. This has got to all just sort of come around and circle back. Something's got to happen here. And I think in some sense we can relate here to the disciples in Acts chapter 1 as they are waiting and wondering on God's timing. The Bible talks a lot about patience. Galatians 5 says patience is a fruit of the Spirit. That means it is something that is cultivate it by God's spirit within us. It doesn't come naturally. That, that Greek word for patience, it's compound words, and it has the idea of long suffering. It, it's, it's the idea of, of a passion that is sort of withheld for a time. It is, it is sort of restrained, and that's what patience is, denying that, that fleshly instinct to react quickly to circumstances and react with emotion. It's this restraint. We understand that. There are those seasons when we want something to happen now, when we don't wish to wait any longer. We want some resolution to all of this. In Acts chapter 1, the followers of Jesus are waiting. They'd already seen the greatest miracle that any of them had ever witnessed. They had seen the man, Jesus of Nazareth, be rejected by the Jewish people, be brutally crucified, executed through crucifixion, his body beaten and pierced and, and hung on a cross until agonizing death. And then on the third day, he rose. He came out of the tomb alive with a resurrected, glorified body that was immortal, that bore the scars of his suffering and yet 
would never suffer again. And Jesus appeared to his disciples. We've already seen over the course of 40 days, he comes and goes and appears and speaks to them. Acts 1.15 says, at this time, there were about 120 followers, all total of Jesus, witnesses to this remarkable truth. People who are sort of isolated in the world in that they know something and they've seen something that the rest of the world does not know and believe, that does not understand what they have experienced. And yet, as we've read before, we saw last week, these same people were under orders. Don't go anywhere. You must stay and wait in Jerusalem. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, but for now you must wait for the Father's promise. You're not there yet. You're not ready to go yet. You don't have power yet from the Spirit, and so you must wait and in fact, we saw last week, they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. They knew that this was at least something Jesus had spoken about. He would go away. The Holy Spirit would come. And so there's, there's some level of things happening. But they are waiting. Imagine if, if you were among a select group of people in a lab and you were watching the creation of the cure for the coronavirus and, and, and you were there and you were told, you, you can't tell anyone. You can't text this. You can't post this on Facebook. You can't tweet this out. You just, you just have to wait. You have to wait until that time comes. It's hard to be patient. And, and Jesus didn't give them a calendar invite. He didn't say you're going to be patient until this point and this is the coming of the Spirit. They didn't know. It had already been six weeks, and now he has ascended. And when we join them here in the middle of Acts 1, they are still waiting. So what do we do when we are waiting? That's really what I want us to think about this morning because I think that's what we're going to see from the, the disciples. What do we do when we find ourselves in a, a season of uncertainty? When, when the current doesn't feel like where we want to be and we're hoping for something different or something to end or change or get better, how do we wait? What do you do when it feels like God isn't bringing you a spouse, isn't advancing your career the way you hoped, isn't giving you a child, isn't moving in your child's life, isn't healing, doesn't seem to be responding to what you had hoped would happen. How do we wait? So in the last half of Acts chapter 1, I'm going to suggest to you four postures that we can learn to adopt while we're waiting. Let's read the whole passage, and then we'll come back and, and talk through it. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120. And Peter said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when it was taken, he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward, forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Before we get to the waiting part, there's, there's three things in this passage that I just want to touch on briefly that are challenges, that are things people will raise questions about concerning this passage and that we can learn from. First of all, there's the description of Judas in verses 18 and 19, when it describes this field that is bought, the reward of his wickedness, and then his death in particular there in, in, in verse 18. That description doesn't seem to sync up as neatly as we would like it to the description of Judas and the field and what is said about his death in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew says that after um, betraying Jesus, that Judas had some form of heart change, and that he went back to the chief priest with the 30 pieces of silver, and he sought to give the money back. He acknowledged that he had turned in, he had betrayed an innocent man, and he seeks to give the money back. They refuse it, and, and so he casts the silver coins down. The chief priests called it blood money, and they then used it to buy this field to bury strangers in. They didn't want the money in the temple treasury, and so they bought the field, and Judas, it says, went and hanged himself. The discrepancies then are, what about this buying of the field? It seems to show him buying it here in Acts and says that it was the priests in Matthew. And then his death, where here it says he fell headlong and died this gruesome death. I think the simplest explanations are first for the money. It was Judas's money, no matter how we look at it. Uh, the priests are responding to um, what Judas does, and they don't want that money. They don't want it for themselves, and rather than take it and put it in the treasury, they simply use it for another purpose, but essentially buy the field in Judas's name, and so it's still very much his money. And since Matthew tells us that Judas hanged himself, it is also entirely possible that he did so, and that the rope broke, and that it fills in the rest of this picture. That um, goes all the way back to Augustine, that sort of understanding of this passage and that he was found in the gruesome condition that Luke describes here. Um, Luke seems to want us to know that Judas did not take any kind of easy way out when he took his life, but rather he died a horrible death. And that seems to be the picture that Luke depicts here. Second challenge for us. So this casting of lots, the means by which Matthias is chosen, verse 26 is the one that says, and they cast lots for them. They'd, they'd sort of nominated two guys who fit the qualifications, and they prayed, and they, they asked the Lord to show them through the casting of lots. And so the question is, is this a good means for decision-making? Uh, should we approach questions by casting lots? Several times as we walk through the book of Acts, one of the questions we're going to need to ask ourselves is, is this descriptive? Or is it 
prescriptive. There's a difference in how we look at Scripture. Acts is a narrative. It's, it's narrating the, the story of the, the early days of the church, the birth of the church. And so as we go through, is this, is this prescribing something that God says is now to be normal for believers henceforth? This is what the practice should be. Is it prescribing it as a command or is it describing it as what happened in the moment? Prescriptions are instructions. They are commands. They are all over scripture. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we know that we are prescribed the commands to deny the flesh, to walk in obedience, to obey God's word, to speak the truth and love to our neighbors, to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. All of those things are prescribed in scripture. Descriptions tell us what happened, who was involved, who said what, how God acted in a certain situation, how people responded. Scripture's full of descriptions of what God did, just as there are clear prescriptions the reality is all scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says all of it is profitable. And so by making that distinction, we're not trying to say this is, this is important and this is secondary, primary or secondary. All scripture is profitable for teaching, correction, training, and rebuke. So whether a passage is descriptive or prescriptive, it is authoritative word of God. But there's a difference between a description of how the disciples cast lots to make this decision and a passage like in James chapter 1 where it says, if you need wisdom, you ask God for wisdom. You seek wisdom from him. Both passages are profitable, but in the description, we're looking more for principles that apply. We're looking to glean whatever wisdom we can. The prescription is much clearer because it is simply, this is what you are to do. You need wisdom, ask for it. And so to the question at hand, there is no command that says to cast lots when we face decisions. There's no call to go back to the Uman and the Thuman in the Old Testament. There's no posture like that that says we should follow this step and that step to sort of mystically find out. This goes back to the Old Testament practice of the casting of lots that God sanctioned, that God used to, to single out tribes. What we are called to, the, the timeless principle, is to, to seek wisdom, to ask others, to pray, to, to go to God. Nowhere is the casting of lots prescribed as a command that God's people must do at all times. The other difference between here and here is that we also have what they didn't have yet in the last part of Acts chapter 1, in that we have the completed Canon of Scripture, we've got the New Testament and all of the wisdom there, and we have the Holy Spirit. We have now been empowered with the Holy Spirit, something that is still future for them, even if just by a few days. And so we are to take the Scriptures, we are to take the Spirit that we have, and we are to carefully seek wisdom from God and from His people. Last point, that I just one other issue that comes up in this section that's important to us and helps us is this mention of apostles. 30 times the book of Acts speaks about apostles. If you go back to the Gospels, this is a relatively new term. Luke is the one who does use it the most in his Gospel. Matthew speaks of apostles only once. John doesn't speak of them at all. Mark and Luke reference apostles a total of eight times. And when Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak of apostles, at least once in each of their books, if not a couple times in Luke, they refer to them as the 12 apostles. We've already seen back in verse 2 of Acts chapter 1 that there were apostles. He, he says in Acts 1-2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so there's already a distinction about these apostles. These are chosen 
by Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 26 that when they cast lots, it fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so that theme that starts in the Gospels, that there are 12 chosen, is now carried on, and Matthias becomes the 12th. The office of apostle is unique in the New Testament. It is a, a position that has singular importance in the foundation of the church. And in fact, this replacement of Judas is what helps us understand what apostles are and, and what's required. If you look again at verse 21, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us, this is Peter saying, how do we choose this man? What wisdom do we have for choosing him? Must be one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. There's a very specific requirement that is placed on apostles, on even consideration for one who might be thought of as an apostle, and that is it must be someone who was a witness from the time of the baptism that John is doing to the time of the ascension of Jesus. It must be somebody who has been there, who has seen the ministry of Jesus, who has listened to Jesus' teaching, and now can explain that, and now can give eyewitness confirmation to the resurrection and ascension. All of that to say, as we read this description, is there are no apostles alive today. There are none today who have walked through the ministry of Jesus Christ and been eyewitnesses to these things. In fact, when James, who is mentioned here, is killed in Acts 12:2, there is no need to replace him at this point. At that point, as apostles are dying, they are no longer replaced because the church is now establishing its foundation on the apostles, and there's no succession at this point. The one unusual one, and he acknowledges it himself to be unusual, is Paul, who we'll read about in Acts chapter 9, who in 1 Corinthians 15 describes himself as one abnormally born, one unusually sort of brought into this, this apostleship. So apostles were foundational. There's no instruction in the scriptures for their succession as there is for local churches when it comes to elders and deacons. All right. Those are the, the three sort of challenges. Let's talk about the four postures of waiting. Let me go back to verse 12, Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That means it was just a short trip. You could only go so far on a Sabbath, and so they've, they've gone just a short distance. doesn't necessarily mean it happened on a Sabbath, just Luke giving us a reference point. And when they entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They came back from the ascension, and they returned to the room where they were, and they waited. And I would submit to you the first posture they took while waiting was to be obedient. They did what they were told. They did what Jesus had commanded them to do. Think about Peter. As you think about the, the disciples as we meet them in the Gospels, Peter is one of the ones that we probably meet the most, that we get the greatest glimpse into his life. And think about Peter. Would you, would you ever describe Peter as a, as a patient guy, willing to wait, willing to just stay in place for further instructions and not overreact to a situation? Everything we know about Peter from what we've seen is he was impetuous. 
When Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem and that he is going to die there, Peter is the one in Matthew 16 to take Jesus aside and it says begin to rebuke him, to say, no, that, that can't possibly be. When Jesus appears on the mountain with Elijah and Moses, it's Peter who says, let's, let's make home here. Let's put some tents up and we'll all stay here. Peter, again, just sort of overreacting in the situation. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, you all will be scattered when I am arrested. And of course, what does Peter say? Not me. They, they all may, but I will never fall away. I'd die before I deny you. And when they come to arrest Jesus, who is the one who disobeys the Lord and pulls the sword at that point? It is Peter. Peter was not a patient man. Peter was that guy. Peter was that guy who was the, let's roll, let's get this done, let's do this, when everybody else is saying, um, should we think about this a little bit? What, what's our plan here? Peter was the action guy. Let's just get it done. Let's move. And, and Peter would rise to be a leader in the early church, clearly. And here he is leading others to obey the Lord and wait, to be obedient and to be patient and to wait. What you and I perceive in our own lives as delays in God answering our prayers, in God doing what we wish he would do, is never a license to take things into our own hands. If God's word says to wait, to trust, to not be afraid, to be content, to submit to governing authorities, to flee evil, to resist the devil... God gives us these commands. We are called to obey to the best of our understanding to do what God's word says and obey. It, it, it really is kind of remarkable when you think about 120 some people in these circumstances remaining patient, having this incredible news and knowing that others around them hadn't even heard this and they've got it and they yet are being obedient. It, it's 10 days from the ascension until Pentecost when the Spirit comes, and, but they don't know that. Jesus didn't give them a calendar and said, just, just another week, guys, just hang in there. He just said, wait. We need to learn obedience over impatience. We need to learn to rest in God's goodness and God's control, even when we're not thrilled about the path that we're on at the moment. If God's Word has told us to trust and to meditate on him, and to cry out to him, and to find community with others, and to seek wisdom, and to be holy, we need to obey him. We need to obey him, even when our flesh is getting antsy for something else. Verse 14 says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. There's two things here. Second one, uh, first one is be obedient. Second posture is one of being unified. Verse 14 says, all these with one accord. New American Standard says, these all with one mind. The Greek word is homothumadon, homo, same, H-O-M-O, same sort of thing. Um, thumos is temperament, mind, but it also has sort of a range to it where it has also the idea of passion was used to describe a gust of wind. Um, so this is more than just Unity as in we all agree to the same points, the same doctrinal statement. What Luke is referring to here is this deeply rooted sense of commitment to one another, this passionate intent to, to be in one accord. There is a concern that they be bonded together. One commentator calls it resolute, 
persistence. And, and what we see in these early disciples is this bond. They, they long to, to link arms together and to be joined to one another and to sort of a, a, a picture of strength in numbers. They still lack power from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's not come upon them, but what they have at that point is one another, and they are determined to bond together. You've got 11 guys here, none of whom yet indwelt by the Spirit, all still learning and growing, all with their own personalities and ideas, and then a, more than 100 other people who are nearby, and all are determined as best as they are able to stand together, to be unified. When you're waiting... When things aren't going the way you hoped and you're looking for change, something to end, you want God to do something, it's not the time to go it alone. It is exactly the time we are called to be in community. In fact, we're never called to go it alone as believers, but we in particular can struggle to be patient when we are waiting on the Lord and struggle to seek community in those times. That's when we need brothers and sisters in Christ. That's when we need to be united together and seek wisdom and to come alongside one another and encourage one another and wait for strength or healing or wisdom or whatever together. These believers didn't all scatter back to their homes to wait by themselves. They were together with resolute passion. This one's particularly challenging for where we are right now. We are scattered in our homes. The benefit we have that they didn't have is technology. And we need to make every effort as a body of believers, as Grace Bible Church, to stay unified, to communicate with one another, to use the technology that God has given us to speak to one another and speak encouragement to one another and serve one another and still find ways in even small group, perhaps family-to-family -family settings, to come alongside each other. We, we can't lose this. There's no special exception to the need for community in the New Testament. We need it. We're just going to have to find other ways to exercise it over the course of the next few weeks. They're unified, and the second thing from verse 14 is they are prayerful. It says they were devoting themselves to prayer. You, it, the grammar's got the force of continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were praying whenever they were together. Every time they came together, it was an opportunity for corporate prayer. It was no doubt what Jesus had been teaching them over those 40 days when he was coming and ministering to them. It's no doubt what they had seen in the example of Jesus in the Gospels. The Son of God frequently is aside in prayer. He is praying to his Father. It doesn't tell us the exact content of their praying, it's almost certain that they were praising God for the, the risen Savior that they had seen. We'd also presume that their prayers were at least somewhat motivated by the command and promise of Jesus that, that the Spirit is coming, and so they are, are now praying that, Lord, bring your Spirit upon us. We desire the fulfillment of your word. They are asking God to do what he has already said he would. Later in the chapter, in, in verse 24, when they have singled out Barsabbas and Matthias, it says, and then they prayed, Lord, knows the hearts of all, Show us who you've chosen. Lord, help us. Give us your direction. Often, we talk about prayer more than we, we actually pray. We know that as believers, we are called to that. Sometimes it doesn't always reflect in us. As Stuart said earlier, the president has identified today as a national day of prayer. We should be praying. 
in our time today, as, as there are no sports to watch. There's very few distractions right now, and, and, and it's driving some of us a little crazy that there's not all those things that we're used to. That is God's kindness in giving us opportunity to pray. Samuel and his farewell in 1 Samuel 12, after the people plead with him to intercede for them, says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's a fascinating statement in that he doesn't say, far be it from me that I should cease, that I, that I should sin against you by not praying for you. He understands that it is sin against the Lord because that prayerlessness is a reflection of God. I actually don't need you as much as I, I, I should. I don't express that dependence. And that's what prayer is praising him and expressing that dependence. The early church follows this, and they pray often, and they pray fervently. Our waiting should be filled with praise and thanksgiving and worship and dependence. Lord, we cannot wait well without your help. We cannot walk through this period of uncertainty without your spirit helping us and reminding us of your goodness and your promises. Last one is meditating on Scripture. Obedient, unified, prayerful, and meditating on Scripture. Verses 15 to 20, and I won't read them all again, but this is when Peter stands up and speaks. And, and Peter's first remark in verse 16 is, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, the betrayer. I know this one sounds like a no-brainer to say we need to meditate on Scripture, but here again is Peter modeling this for us in that they didn't have anything else to do but wait, but now Peter in his meditation on Scripture is compelled by the fact that God has been at work in all of this, that God, in, in what happened through Judas, this was not outside of God's control. The fact that they are now 11 is something that, that he is now seeing as he's looking at Scripture. There must be 12, and yet God did all this as planned through Judas, and so he quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Peter is already learning to rely on Scripture and to meditate on Scripture and to glean wisdom and direction from Scripture. Peter's already meditating on Old Testament Scripture, and he now stands up and he says, you know what? In Judas, the Scriptures were fulfilled. This was all according to God's plan, and therefore... Replacement for Judas is something that we need to do. You and I must be in God's word. Worldly wisdom is worthless. Go on social media right now and see what great life insights are out there these days. There are people close to us who are in turmoil, who are terrified, who are afraid, if not for their health, for their job, for their retirement, for some family member, and, and down to whether or not there's going to be stuff in the store that they need for their family. They are terrified. And then you, you look on social media and you find these great little pithy sentiments like, stick together, stay positive, think good thoughts, don't stress, be kind, have, have faith in something, side by side with a video of people fighting on the floor at a, a department store over a, a case of water. Our hope must rest fully and only in the promises of a good God who gave his son to die for his people. And we need to meditate on who he is. We need to know his truth. We need to think on his truth. 
And we more than ever need to be speaking his truth into a world that is brushing up so close to disease and death right now. We need to speak truth into this. Not just pithy statements, but we are dealing with people who literally cannot find peace. And he is our peace. He is our hope. He is our rock. He is our refuge and our strength. We need to be meditating on those truths and speaking them into this world. As we, as we pray today, as we honor this National Day of Prayer, we should pray prayers that are saturated with Scripture. As we post on social media, we should be giving the wisdom of the one true God. As we wait, we should be filling our own hearts with the truths of Scripture so that we would intimately know how good and mighty wonderful and loving and powerful our God is. And may we then proclaim Christ, the anchor for our souls, to a world that desperately needs him. I'll give you one verse, and I want to close with this as we pray. The end of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul has celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul has said that this foundational truth, the fact that Christ died for our sins and then rose and was seen alive, and he, he spends 1 Corinthians 15 exalting the fact that Jesus Christ is risen. He finishes 1 Corinthians 15 with verse 58 and says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, that is our simple benediction this day. That, Lord, you would, by your Spirit, make your people, the few of us gathered here, the church family as they're watching online, Lord, for those who are trusting in Christ, make us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In a, in a day where things change from one moment to the next, where uncertainty just seems to be the, the definition of the day, would you, we pray, Lord, make the believers, the body here at Grace Bible Church to be steadfast. That we would stand resting in who you are, knowing that you are a refuge and a present help, that you will not abandon your people, that you will not forsake us, that you are good that you are kind and just, may we be steadfast in these truths. Help us, Father, to be immovable by your Spirit in us. That when, when others around us are urged to run in panic, are urged to retreat in depression, are tempted to simply withdraw or to become angry or sullen. Lord, cause your people to be immovable in whatever circumstances we face, that we would be founded to be on the rock that is Jesus Christ, believing that our hope and our salvation, our life, our eternity is on him. 
And Lord, may your spirit enable us to always abound in the work you've called us to do. Whether that is caring for a neighbor in distress, whether that is being the person who makes sure that someone else who looks desperate at a grocery store gets what they need, whether that is loving our neighbor by telling them that there is hope in this and there is a kind and gracious God who loves them and calls them to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Enable us to always abound in the work of the Lord as we are waiting as we are waiting on your good work, as we are waiting with uncertainty about what each day brings, may we be found to be a people who are obedient, who are striving for community, who are in prayer. Lord, would you help us as a church to use the resources that are available to us to, to find community, to make community, to, to be in contact with each other and not allow the need for social isolation to protect the health and well-being of others to cut us off from the community that we desperately need as believers in Jesus Christ. We need your help. We pray that your spirit would be at work in and through us. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.